Um, This morning we come to the line in Jesus' Lord's Prayer. Um, It's the third line we're going to look at in depth in Matthew 6.11, which says, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. So we're walking through this famous prayer that Jesus gave his disciples as a way of learning not only the language of prayer, the vocabulary of prayer, but really as a paradigm for our relationship to God. And we understand that essential to the invitation of the gospel is that Christ has included us in himself. He's united us to himself so that his father has now become our father. And we are learning how to love and enjoy and relate to Jesus, Father, as our own. And so in addition to being a paradigm for prayer that would actually be words we regularly pray uh, on a regular basis, individually and as a community, the Lord's Prayer serves as kind of this template that helps us understand some of the most significant dimensions of Jesus' relationship with the Father that we're invited into. And so as we get to this line, give us this day our daily bread, Um, there's a couple things that I want to focus in on. The first is that this prayer teaches us something about God, and and secondly, it teaches us something about ourselves. Um, Before we get to that, in John 6, the passage that Aaron read for us, we have basically a story within a story within a story. And I won't take the time to go in-depth into the whole story, but we have this conversation between Jesus and some of his disciples, and he's explaining to them something about who God is and something about who they are, and ultimately, in the middle of it all, something about who he is. And he refers to himself repeatedly in this passage as the bread of life as the bread of life. Now, it's a significant and um, intriguing passage on its own, but if you look at the context earlier in chapter 6, there's an experience that Jesus and his disciples had just shared that gives us even a greater way of understanding the conversation about Jesus being the bread of life. And the experience they've just shared is that Jesus has just done this miraculous performance of feeding the 5,000, right? So you have this crowd of hungry people and they have no food, and Jesus shows up, and he miraculously provides food for the masses. And so he gives them bread. So then when we get to the later part of John 6, we understand that when Jesus is talking about bread, he's talking about something within a much larger story. When you get to the first story of Jesus multiplying the fishes and loaves for the masses, you start to understand there's even a bigger story that he's talking about. And it goes back to the book of Exodus, when God's people had been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they had been wandering in the wilderness as they are being prepared to enter into the promised land, they found themselves also in the desert without food or without bread. And God, in his gracious provision, supernaturally provides this bread from heaven, which is called what? Manna. And literally means, what is it? Because they've never seen anything like it before. This bread that falls from heaven, and every single day, the people of God have enough to eat. And so for those that were there on the mountainside that day, as Jesus 
um, supplies bread for the hungry crowd in the wilderness. They're connecting that to God providing manna for the Israelites in the desert. And then as Jesus begins this conversation with his disciples later, he's saying, yeah, the wilderness story and the feeding of the 5,000 story, both of those aren't just signs to prove my supernatural power or to gain a crowd or to gain popularity. He said both of those were signs pointing to the reality of me, of who I am. He's like, manna's great, and fishes and loaves are great, but both of those are just signs that point to me, who's the true bread of life. And so we'll come back to that in a moment, but here's here's what I want to focus in on, the idea that as we think about the role that bread plays in the story of God, and who God is, and who we are, and how Christ mediates this relationship, there's something, um, there's a couple ways that I found really helpful to think about this. And first, we'll start with an illustration from the world of biology. In the biological world, you essentially have two kinds of living organisms. You have autotrophs and heterotrophs. Right? So autotrophs are those organisms that are able to self-feed or self-nourish. They're organisms like plants and bacteria and algae and that sort of thing that don't need physical food, but they're able to <clears throat> create their own food, most often through a process like photosynthesis. And so we have this whole kingdom of autotrophic creatures uh, within the world that are able to feed or create Uh, food for themselves. And then heterotrophs, hetero means other, right? And so heterotrophs mean we, these organisms that are unable to create their own food, they need food from an outside source in order to create energy and to live. And so animals, as well as humans, fungus, other things like that, we aren't able to magically produce energy from within ourselves to sustain us. We need to feed on something else, We need something outside of us to come into us and to give us life. So in the food chain then, autotrophs are known as, anybody know? Producers, very good. And heterotrophs then are known as consumers, good. When Jesus teaches his disciples to ask their father to give them daily bread, And when Jesus speaks to these disciples and reminds them that he himself is the bread of life, he's reminding us that God is the producer and we are the consumers. That God is a giver. God is a provider. God is a sustainer. And we are the recipients of his life dependent upon his grace and his provision to survive. Now, on one hand, we could talk about this simply at the biological level, that as heterotrophic beings, humans are dependent upon God to provide for our daily needs, that he's the one who keeps our hearts beating, he's the one who keeps the world turning. But I'm also convinced that the human soul is a heterotrophic being. That we are unable to produce food for our own souls. We need, just like at a biological level, at a soul level, we need something from the outside of us. 
We need something to provide for us or to assign to us or to give to us meaning and joy and a sense of purpose in our lives. Those are not things that we can cultivate or create on our own. Those are things that need to be given to us. The human soul is a heterotrophic being. Now, of course, what happens is that we all know this in our physical, spiritual need to consume has driven us to create a world in which our primary identity then is that of economic consumers, right? Brands and corporations are the producers promising us that their products, their goods, their services will not only sustain our bodies, but will actually be able to feed our souls, because we know that we need something outside of us for joy, for meaning, for a sense of purpose. And we play into this game of buying into the promises that if I just had that next thing, that latest, greatest gadget, that bigger, newer, nicer car or house or whatever it is, that maybe, maybe finally then my soul would find what it longs for. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a consumer at an economic level, and certainly not at a biological level. In fact, I think in God's brilliance, he specifically designed humans in such a way that about three times a day, we're reminded of our heterotrophic nature. About three times a day, we get hungry, and we're not able to just photosynthesize light into energy, we need to go find something outside of us to eat. About three times a day, God says, I want to remind you that you need me. Now, he didn't have to create us that way. He could have made us like some kind of python that like eats a deer every six months and is good to go. Um, but in his grace, in his generosity, three times a day, he wants to provide for us. He wants to meet our needs and remind us of his love and of his provision. But the problem comes when we start looking to other things other than God to save and to feed our souls. When we place our trust, our hope, and our confidence that in the, all the other stuff that the world offers us to consume, that somehow one of those things is going to be the secret to life, joy, happiness, purpose, and meaning. And so in this passage in chapter uh, 6, verse 49, as Jesus calls his hearers back to this original Exodus story, he reminds them that yes, even though God provided for your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Yet they died. So God was faithful to meet their daily biological needs. But Jesus is saying, I'm talking about a bread I'm talking about a food for your soul that's so much bigger and so much better than the manna from heaven. In the next verse, uh, verse 50, Jesus says, there's a bread of life that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. And he goes, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And so Jesus is speaking 
into the human condition of the desert. The desert plays a major role all throughout the story of God. And the desert shows up in our lives on a regular basis as well. The desert is those pla- are those places where God teaches us by taking away. Where we are reduced to the fundamental elements of trust. Where everything that we have been trying to feed our soul with just isn't working anymore. When we're not finding life and happiness and meaning and joy in all the things that we should be, we find ourselves in the desert. We find ourselves hungry and more aware than ever of how much we need life from God. Now, this isn't something that sounds like fun to most of us, and I'll tell you firsthand that it's not. Nobody wants to go through seasons in the desert. But I'm actually suspicious that maybe the reason we don't experience more of God's power and presence in our lives is that we aren't living lives or praying prayers that require God to show up. As Americans, we have this cultural value of self-sufficiency. Our idea of independence is that we don't need anything from anyone, that we're self-made, we're self-sufficient. And most of us hate, hate being in a position where we have to ask someone else for help. We do everything we can to, be, to avoid being in that spot. And we translate that then to life before God and think that if maturity at a social level is independence, then maturity at a spiritual level must be independence as well. Where way back when I was a young Christian or before I was saved, before I knew Jesus, that's when I really needed grace. That's when I needed mercy. That's when I needed acceptance and forgiveness. But now I've grown up into a mature Christian and I don't need that stuff anymore. And for those of us that have walked with Jesus for any length of time, we know, we know that that's not how it works. That the longer we walk with him, the more aware we become of how dependent we are upon him. The more we realize just how much we need him, his grace, his power, his love, his acceptance. I had no idea when I raised my hand at seven years old to become a Christian just how depraved my soul is and the capacity for sin that I have. But now as I'm pushing 40, I'm more aware than ever of the depths of God's love that would extend even to me in Christ. And so this culture that we have of wanting to be self-sufficient, not wanting to need anything from anyone, including God, this insistence upon avoiding the desert I actually think is one of the greatest barriers from us entering into the promised land and experiencing the life of abundance, joy, peace, and meaning that Christ calls us to life and life to the full. And so what if we went about learning to pray prayers and to live lives that actually required God 
What would it look like for us to learn how to need him again? To live in such a way that requires God to show up, to pray such prayers that would require God to step in. And I actually wonder if dependence upon God is the true path to Christ-likeness. So this changes the way we navigate those seasons of desperation, hunger, need, emptiness. That when we're confronted with the heterotrophic nature of our souls, that rather than that spinning us into a crisis of despair or doubt or anger or whatever else, what if we learn to receive life in the desert as a gift from God? that he's exposing all the false sources of bread and life that we've been banking on as the stupid idols that they are. So at a practical level, in my life as one of the pastors and elders in this church, and as I work with our various other pastors and team members and volunteers and leaders, as a church, regularly we find ourselves in a place of need. We need more money to fund this ministry or this program. We need more volunteers to run that ministry or kids or whatever it is. We need more meeting spaces so we can have more groups and gatherings. We need more leaders so we can multiply our discipleship. On a regular basis, we have visions and dreams and hopes and things that we feel like God's called us to do and to be about, and we have this sense of limited resources, First, people, finances, facilities, whatever it is. And so as a pastor and elder here, what I do is to do, I do my best to in those moments to receive that need as grace and to thank God for bringing us to a place where we have to depend on him, where we have to pray to him, where we have to trust him. The goal isn't to get our church operation to a point that no longer requires God. The goal is that we of all people would be those who are having to trust and rely on him to sustain our very existence and life and ministry day to day to day. That changes the way you greet those moments of need. The same is true for Jen and I on the home front, even though you guys generously support our family every month so that I can pursue my calling as your pastor, there's quite a few months every year, if I'm honest, where we don't know how we're going to make it, right? And I'm sure none of you guys have those months. You guys are all Dave Ramsey'd out and doing all the stuff. But you know those months, like when everything goes according to plan, usually you're okay, but then there's the month where like the dishwasher and the transmission and the water heater all go out at the same time. And you didn't have a plan for that. By the way, it's just called a water heater. You don't have to say hot water heater. If it's hot, you don't need to heat it. It's just a water heater. (laughs) That's something that's dear to my heart and I just need to share with you. And so we regularly get to this place, you know, on a week left in the month. We're like, ugh, it's just not penciling out. We don't have what we need. And I'm not saying it's easy to do, but when you understand 
This vision is God providing, sustaining, feeding, not just our bodies, but also our souls. And you understand that it's in those moments, in those deserts, where he causes us to turn to him. To not trust in our bank account or our hard work or whatever else, but to simply trust in him. To go even a deeper level personally, I'm at a moment in my life where I'm experiencing a need for God in a a significant way. And I don't talk about this a whole lot, and there's no reason I shouldn't, but um, many of you know I've battled a significant cloud of depression over the last several years. And uh, the truth is, every morning is a fight for me to get out of bed and to face the day. And the frustrating part is that I love my life. I really do. I love Jesus and the life that he's given me. I love my wife and my kids and our family. I love my friends and our community. I love my work and the ministry and uh, everything I get to do. I literally wouldn't change a thing. But for whatever reason, I'm just not nearly as happy as I should be. And some of you know exactly what that's like, right? That there's just this cloud of sadness, um, fog. It's hard to think clearly. It's hard to find the motivation just to adult and all that stuff. And really, for the longest time, I thought, maybe this is just what it feels like to be an adult, right? (laughs) And there might be something to it. Um, But this is the battle I fight and continue to fight and worked with my doctor and spiritual director, uh, the elders, my brothers that we we lead alongside of, um, know this and I have prayed and spoken in. And um, and the truth is, I know that there's, you know, probably some lifestyle changes I could make that would at least help me feel a little better. But if you've ever been depressed, you know that it's, it's so hard just to, like, get up and do the normal thing, let alone trying to draw on the inner resources to make over your entire life, right? There's just this paralyzing... Um, Sadness and fat, fog, <laughs> excuse me. So I've been in a desert of sorts. And it's not to complain about any of my circumstances. And in a certain sense, I'm grateful that God has revealed that all the stuff that's supposed to make somebody happy, it actually isn't. And so where does that leave me? I need Jesus. I need the true bread of life that will never, ever die. And I am hopeful that there's bread for me. I'm hopeful that there's grace for me. And there's more for me. And as countercultural and counterintuitive as it may be, I'm learning to be thankful for this desert and trusting that God will lead me out of it one way or another. And I'll come out on the other side looking more like Jesus. And so most of us living as the lives we live in Bend, Oregon, the idea of a daily need, of requiring daily provision, for most of us, it's just not going to be true at the bread level, right? Even when our cupboards are bare, we can figure something out. And that's why I think God is extra gracious 
to bring us into these dark nights of the soul, these spiritual deserts, where even when everything externally is good and lined up, our soul is hungry for more and won't be satisfied until we get him. So let me share with you a couple practical practices. Now it's real redundant, sorry. Uh, (laughs) What do we do when we find ourselves in the desert? Or a better question is, what does it look like for us to live this prayer? How do we practice the prayer for bread? We understand that we have heterotrophic souls and that Jesus is the bread, but what's that actual process by which the life that is Christ enters into us? It's a nice idea in theory, but what does it look like to feed on him, to receive life and grace from him? Where is the table where we are invited to come and to dine on the bread of life? And the first one is, of course, this table, the Eucharist, the good gift, the table of thanksgiving, the table where we receive life from Jesus again. N.T. Wright says that when Jesus wanted to explain to his followers the meaning of his death, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. It's the brilliance of this meal which our biological bodies receive something, but ultimately it's a place where our soul receives something as well. And Christians throughout the centuries and all different traditions have different theories and theologies of what exactly it is that happens at the table. And I am not interested in really breaking down all those theories other than to say that it is a historically agreed upon means of grace. That it is one of the places where Christ offers himself to us and promises to meet us there. And we may feel something magic or warm and fuzzy in those moments, or we may not, which makes it even more of a step of faith, because all grace is received through faith. That as we come, we acknowledge, God, you're not only the giver of my breath and of my life and everything I have, but you are the food for my soul. And I'm acknowledging my dependence upon you. I need you. I'm hungry for you. And I want you to come and fill my life with yourself. And this isn't a jump, because if you go straight through this passage in the book of John, the very next thing he says as his disciples are going, what what is this whole thing about Jesus being the bread of life? Jesus says in verse 53, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Again, all kinds of questions, and this is a passage that is certainly alarming uh, to many skeptics and seekers of the faith. But we do receive this beautiful invitation in this tradition of the church of coming on a regular basis and participating in this means of grace, a way by which the very real presence of Christ shows up among us 
and offers his life to us. So it's been about three years now, I think, since Antioch reoriented our Sunday gatherings around the table. And before that, communion was something that was offered on a kind of irregular basis on Sunday nights, and, and that's fine. But for us, I hope you've noticed that the whole service every week leads us to the table. This is one of those things that the body of Christ has always done together. This is one of those things you can't do by listening to a sermon on a podcast. This is something that we do together to express our dependency and to receive grace from Jesus. And so I hope after three years, you're starting to understand the centrality of this practice. This is the central practice, spiritual discipline in my life. Even more significant than my personal prayer or time of scripture or anything else, I can't imagine walking with Jesus without regularly receiving him at the table. So, receive communion. And we always say that, but we don't take communion at Antioch, right? We receive it. We don't have to pry grace out of God's clenched fists, but we simply come and take and receive the offering that he's given us. Secondly, what does it look like to practice this prayer of give us today our daily bread? Well, I would say it looks like feeding on the word of God. Feeding on the word of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, and this is again hearkening back to that story in Exodus, the author says that he humbled you, people of God, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Multiple times throughout the scriptures, the authors compare God's word, the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, to bread, to food for our souls. Another means of grace is the reading, the studying, and the listening to of God's word. That we believe it's living, it's active, that the same spirit who inspired the writing of this scripture so many hundreds or thousands of years ago, that same spirit will inspire our reading and our hearing of it, and ultimately our obeying and living of it. So on a regular basis, when we find our souls starved, when we find ourselves unsatisfied, when we're feeling hunger for more of God, one of the first questions I would ask is, are you feeding on the word of God? Not to try to guilt you into doing devotions, but as a path forward towards the longing of your heart. Like, I know you want more of God in your life. I know that you want a more, uh, a real experience of his power and his presence. I know you want to be tuned in to hear his voice and empowered by his spirit to live the life of Christ. That's what you want. And Jesus offers that to us in his word. It says as we come to him on a regular basis to eat this book, that his life will flow into us. And again, just like communion, sometimes we have those warm, fuzzy moments in the scripture where I feel like God's in the room and I'm hearing his voice and he's speaking right to me. And other times it's just like a bowl of cereal, right? And it's not going to be an epic, memorable meal, but it's what I needed that morning. 
So receive communion, feed on God's word. And thirdly, I would argue that practicing this prayer looks like remembering the poor. This line, like I said, convicts those of us who live in a world of plenty because it reminds us that throughout history and throughout the world today, there are people that would read this line of the prayer, give us our daily bread, and they're not going to have to spiritualize it. They literally don't know where their next meal will come from. They literally don't know how to provide for their kids on a daily basis. And it's a huge question to wrestle with, but the reality is that the world is full of hungry people. Hungry for hope, hungry for justice, hungry for love, for mercy, and yes, hungry for bread. And so part of what this prayer reveals to us about God is that God doesn't want people to go hungry tonight. God wants all humanity to live in a place where their basic needs are met, physically, spiritually, and otherwise. And so, yes, we pray this prayer along with Jesus, and we pray it in the plural, because it's not just give me today my daily bread, but it's us. Well, who's the us? It's an infinite number of concentric circles that extends to all humanity. It's me and my family and my community and my church and my city and my country and this world. Give us what we need. You are the one and the only one that can provide for us. So we join into solidarity with the poor by praying in this prayer on a regular basis remembering those who don't have what we do. In Mark's account of this same story, the feeding of the 5,000, let me read just a little bit of it. It says, By this time it was so late in the day, and his disciples said to him, This is a remote place. This is a desert. They said, And it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So this is the disciples saying to Jesus, here's what you should do, Jesus. Send the people away so that they can go find food. And Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. So in some sense, the disciples are praying this prayer. Lord, these people need bread. They need food. So here's what I want you to do, God. Here's my way of fixing this problem or meeting this need. And Jesus responds to their prayer, or you could even say answers their prayer by saying, you do it. You give them something to eat. And I think we could anticipate Jesus would answer our prayer for daily bread in the same way. What have I given to you that could be used to bless, to love, to help to impart hope and justice and food to those who need it within your city, country, world, the ends of the earth. And so part of the answer we would receive is a commissioning. 
that is just as Jesus has given his life to us, he says, now I want you to take what I've given and go give it to the world. And all three of these practices, communion, scripture, and service or justice, are not just means of trying to be good Christians and carry out the life that we're supposed to. But I actually think that these are the practices that center us in the desert, that awaken us to the voice of the Spirit and to the life of Jesus. That when we're feeling hungry, when we're feeling uh, that sense of desperation or desert in, the, in those places, he's like, don't just sit around and hope things get better, but come feed on me. Receive my word. And go love people as I've loved you. And in that, Christ offers his life to us. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are the food that our souls long for and we know that nothing else can satisfy. And yet we find ourselves often in the desert, in a place of want, dissatisfaction, discouragement. And we see that sometimes that's the exact place we need to be in order for you to pour more of your life into us. So I pray for myself, for this beloved community of saints, for this city that we live in. Lord, would you fill us with your hope, with your life, with a conviction that nothing else can satisfy our souls. Lord, we pray for those that are hungry today. Here in our city and across the world. Lord, we stand with them in their need and in their desperation and pray that in your great mercy you would provide for them and that you would call each of us, show each of us how you're calling us to help give life to the world. So we come to this table, Lord, Beggars, nothing to offer, empty hands. All we bring is nothing. And we pray that you would meet us here this morning. Give us the food we need to live through this day. In Jesus' name we pray.